Welcome to my podcast. I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, books written about him. But mostly, these are my own ideas, distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. Before settling in, I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen. I hope you enjoy these episodes and that you will consider subscribing to the podcast or giving me your support with a small donation. Today, let's look to a masterful short story that appears in Hemingway's first book, In Our Time. I will address a broad, complex range of meaning once again invoked in a mere three to four pages, and I will linger in this remarkable collection for a good number of broadcasts. Take a few moments, if you choose, to read or reread the story, The End of Something. I moved to this story from Hills Like White Elephants since we again see a young couple at the center of the story, struggling to communicate fully and honestly, and again, we find striking use of point of view and of metaphoric language and understanding as modes of expression. The story, as with Hills Like White Elephants, yet to an even greater degree, begins with a seemingly objective passage, the narrative telling the history of the small town of Horton's Bay in northern Michigan feels even more objective at first glance, disconnected from the male and female characters we will soon see, quote, ten years later. And again, the story provokes with subtly charged opening sentences, quote, In the old days, Horton's Bay was a lumbering town. No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws in the mill by the lake. And here too, as with Hills, even though there is no overtly designated point of view behind the words, that early phrase, in the old days, certainly gives us a sense of a human presence, one which seems familiar with the landscape and setting, who is aware of its history and can refer to the history as the old days. And as with Hills Like White Elephants, I'm struck by the poetic meter of the opening, especially the second sentence, with its string of prepositional phrases, locating and directing, and again, as with Hills, placing things carefully in relation to other things we will see later in the story. Quote, No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws in the mill by the lake. I'm emphasizing the prepositions there, but notice the lack of the article the before the word sound. It's not out of the sound of, but rather out of sound of the big, etc. And Hemingway regularly breaks syntax as an artistic tool in his work, which accentuates all those locating prepositions and normalizes the meter as mostly iambic. 
So even though we are being given something that at first glance appears like a passage from a history text, a clear human presence conveys the information to us. One thing that will jump out to the careful reader in these simple but not so simple sentences are the repetitions Hemingway uses. And Hemingway's use of repetition is a common, often critiqued element of his unique style. But look back through that paragraph and note the words Horton's Bay, Mill, Schooner, Lumber, Trees, Saws. Notice they don't repeat in a random manner. Six of the words appear in the rhetorical, poetic form known as a chiasmus. And thanks to the scholar Max Nanny for discovering the appearance of this pattern in so much of Hemingway's work, a chiasmus is a specific form of repetition in which words repeat in what I think of as a folded pattern. A, B, C, D, then the inverse. D, C, B, A, where these letters correspond to specific words. Looking through that opening paragraph, it's easy to find the start and end words of the chiasmus as Horton's Bay. They are in the first and last sentence of the paragraph. The following words appear in this order in the paragraph. Horton's Bay, Mill, Lake, Lumber, Bay, Schooner. Then, in reverse order, from the middle of the paragraph to the end, we find Schooner, Bay, Lumber, Lake, Mill, Horton's Bay. There are plenty of other repeating words like saws and logs, and you may well be able to find smaller chiasmuses within individual or series of sentences. One way I think of repetition with such a clear visual pattern like these chiasmuses in Hemingway is to consider how deeply influenced he was by painters. In A Movable Feast, he specifically says that by going to look at the Impressionist painters every day helped him put the kinds of dimensions, quote unquote, he was shooting for in his own work. Here, the speaker of the passage, the narrative point of view, is landing heavily upon these same words, gathering them into a clear pattern and painting with them, pushing towards something they know has meaning, something they need to say. The presence of this chiasmus, as with so many of them in Hemingway's writing, works to establish for the reader more of a poetic, controlling presence, even when the simplicity and directness and seeming objectivity of the language suggests otherwise. This lyrical, dizzyingly repetitive opening paragraph, which tells a seemingly unrelated story with its own beginning, middle, and end, drives an urgency at play just beneath the surface of the words, someone quite possibly expressing them, and in this way, for whom this mini-preamble story is deeply relevant. We will return to the history of Horton's Bay and its relevance to the story of Nick and Marjorie shortly. And after the 10-year jump in time, once again, the first person's voice we hear is that of the female character. And again, as with Hills Like White Elephants, it is a voice commenting on the things that have just been described to us in a seemingly objective manner. Marjorie says, there's our old ruin. Here, as with Hills Like White Elephants, the female character begins with a more literal statement, there's our old ruin. 
the hills across the valley of the Ebro were long and white, then revises it into a figurative expression with a simile. Marjorie then says, it seems more like a castle. And as with hills like white elephants, her revision is telling. The literal term ruin is refined and sharpened, much as the, quote, like white elephants became, it's just the coloration of their skin through the trees. And while Nick is certainly not nearly as robotic and grounded in his urgency to convince his lover to do something she clearly doesn't want to do, he too is blunt and abrupt in his replies. Not even playing along, not even trying to communicate with Marjorie on her terms. His responses to Marjorie's opening lines of dialogue are, quote, there it is, and I can just remember, and finally, he said nothing. When they arrive at the point, Marjorie immediately asks him what's wrong. These are clearly not his normal responses to her playful, inventive observations. Here, an important distinction needs to be made, lest you think I'm only arguing that hills and the end of something are exactly the same, clearly, as can be seen in the earlier story, Indian Camp, which I will look at in my next podcast. We know that Nick himself has exhibited the capacity and need to use creative language when scientific explanation hits its limit. And even if we haven't read that story, and perhaps only Hills Like White Elephants, Nick is clearly not as narrowly self-serving as the man in Hills. Likewise, Marjorie is clearly not as unhappy with Nick as the girl is with the American. There is, or there has been, a real connection with them. One that leaves Nick feeling as if everything has gone to hell inside him when he does break up with Marjorie. It is also telling that both characters have names, and not just descriptors, girl, American. Yet, as with Hills, the girl, Marjorie, is clearly the more self-aware, stronger, more capable of expressing her emotions. But let's back up and look to the landscape of this story further. For just as with Hills, and as with so many settings in Hemingway's fiction, the setting of this story is as important as the whole story. The setting itself contains all, or rather, harbors the meaning of the story. When teaching this story, I often ask students to make a list of the numbers of endings they find in the story. The title is the end of something, after all, and there are many of them. The lumber mill is the first big ending we find, for it came to an end when the schooners took away all the things that had defined it as a mill. All that defining equipment gathered on the schooner and carried away. Nick and Marjorie are rowing along the edge of a drop-off where the water goes from shallow to ten feet deep. The shallows come to an end, and they row to a point of land. The land comes to an end at the point. And when I lived in Michigan, I once visited Horton Bay, there's no S in the actual place, and walked down to the water, and sure enough, there was the drop-off. There was the point in the distance. You can use Google Earth and see these clearly if you like. Once again, it almost feels to me as if Hemingway has gone searching for the perfect story to put into this landscape, 
one that echoes it, even as it echoes the dynamics at play in the plot of the fiction. And there were more endings. The reach of the light of the fire goes only so far into the darkness of the lake, and their relationship is ending. Just as with the dizzying blast of repeated words the story begins with, the story also posits a dizzying array of things coming to an end. And Marjorie is even last seen rowing away from Nick, carrying with her something akin to what the saws and pulleys and machineries of the mills that the schooners carried away on that same body of water when the mill ended, leaving Nick empty and in ruins, just like the old abandoned and now fully gone, but for the foundation, mill. But the next thing I ask students to list are beginnings. What you find is that for each of these endings, something begins. The shallows end. The deep water begins. The land of the point ends. Water begins. Daytime ends. Night begins. The sunlight ends. The moonlight begins. Nick even senses its imminent rise on the other side of the ridge, about to come into view. And yes, the mill town of Horton Bay ends, but Horton's Bay is still there at the time Nick and Marjorie row to the point, and to this day it's there. So some other iteration or incarnation of it began when the mill ended. And the striking thing about each of these beginnings is that they are more complex, deeper, less simple than what ended. Think of a mill encampment with mostly lumberjacks and cooks, maybe a camp doctor whose mission is simply to cut as many trees as possible. And once all the trees are gone, the end. But think of a human community like the one that exists there to this day with a school and stores and ambulance service and a mayor and people of all ages, a complex, diverse human community with many diverse perspectives and objectives. Surely what began when Horton's Bay, the logging community, ended is vastly more than the original mill encampment. Likewise, consider the difference between land and water. Walking on the land of the point is solid, stable, simple, while moving through water is more difficult to navigate. It's more dense, complex. Night, too, like the deep water, like water itself, is full of its secrets and things that are more difficult to discern than what is seen in the clear sunlight of daytime. And what happens when we turn this idea toward Nick and Marjorie's relationship, especially when we consider her response to Nick's quote, it isn't fun anymore, with, isn't love any fun? Might the words love and fun correlate to these other endings and beginnings? What Nick refers to as fun and his claim that Marjorie, quote, knows everything may well speak to the fun and ease of cutting down all the lumber versus creating a dynamic human community or to going from the shallows into the deep water. Is Marjorie saying to Nick, I know you love me. I know you're afraid of the deep water that has begun in our relationship. The fun may have ended, but might that mean, and might Marjorie strongly, cuttingly imply, that love has begun? Something deeper, denser, less clear and simple, but more sustainable and valuable. Leading up to Marjorie's striking question, isn't love any fun? 
we find another provocative repetition, but this time it's a single word, no, K-N-O-W, no, which appears 10 times in the dialogue exchange leading up to Marjorie's question. Of those 10 no's, Marjorie utters just two of them, both positive. The first in response to Nick's, there's going to be a moon tonight, when she says, I know, which sets Nick off on his tirade about her, quote, knowing everything. You know everything. You know you do. You know you do. What don't you know anyway? Serves as a sort of chiasmus of exact and similar phrases. Marjorie's, you don't have to talk silly. What's really the matter? Is fittingly answered with an, I don't know, by Nick. And Marjorie's, of course you know, is, like the woman in Hills Like White Elephants, acknowledging and poking fun at Nick's inability to say things more fully and completely, somewhat like the man's perfectly simple repetitions in Hills. Nick's use of the word no, again, shows a limited and ineffective mode of expression by the male character. Marjorie is a more nuanced and capable communicator. She's part making fun of all his you-know-everythings, sounding almost like a parent imploring a child to articulate more fully. She'd even assist him when he finally tries to say it more clearly and settles on it isn't fun anymore, not any of it. With that powerful line I keep coming back to, isn't love any fun? Replacing his it with a statement that speaks to the deeper, more complex truth of what Nick can't find a way to express. When he replies no, N-O, not K-N-O-W, no, a final homophone for all those no's, K-N-O-W's, Marjorie no longer engages him. She takes the boat. She doesn't allow him to push her off even. She instructs him to walk around the point. She is so strong here, independent, forceful. And this moment clearly echoes the moment in Hills Like White Elephants when the woman says, there's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. And here again, a strong, creative, complex woman asserts herself emphatically when faced with a less articulate, less dynamic male character. But this is quite different than Hill's. Read A Three-Day Blow, the very next story, to see how shaken Nick is, how much he yearns to try to get back together with her. And we can see this already throughout the story, and especially at the end when Bill arrives, when he lays on his stomach, unable to move, an image echoed in many stories throughout the collection. Nick is a much more complex male character than the American man in Hills Like White Elephants or the man in Cat in the Rain, another story that I'll look at in a future podcast. It could even be argued that Nick's point of view often mirrors Marjorie's. They both look at the rods angling toward the water. They both look at the reach of the firelight on the water, at the lights across the bay, at the moon rising. Nick can also just remember the mill when it was a mill. Bill's appearance at the end of the story is also significant in his question, did she go okay? And Nick lying to him, saying, yes, suggests that he, at the very least, knew of Nick's plan and may well have influenced it. In Three Day Blow, the latter becomes crystal clear. And Marjorie knows it's not really what Nick feels and wants, as her loaded question, isn't love any fun, shows us. She knows he loves her. She sets up a paradox for him as a kind of test. If he says no, as he does, he is admitting that he does love her. 
that he's just not capable of stepping off the steady land of their relationship grounded only in fun and in learning new things about the other person and into the deeper water. And ironically, Marjorie knows a lot more than Nick, though he uses that word so freely. She knows they have moved into a stage of their relationship that rewards in different ways. Another favorite sequence of repetitive lines of mine from the story are, quote, she loved to fish. She loved to fish with Nick. Here is the only other time we find the word love in the story, and these two simple sentences say so much. She's not considering the fun of fishing with Nick. She's addressing two things that become one singular transcendent thing, her love of fishing, and then how that is magnified and made even more powerful by her love of doing this thing she loves with someone she loves and whom she knows loves her. It is far simpler and serves as a kind of answer to Nick's flawed logic that since she, quote, knows everything and he has, quote, taught her everything, and therefore the relationship must end. And note how this echoes the logical syllogism of the man in Hills Like White Elephants that I addressed in my last podcast. For me, this story serves as a stunning example of those moments in love relationships when we step off the steady land, when we fall into the deeper water, losing the clarity and simplicity we experienced up to now. Marjorie can see the ending of that phase of the relationship as the beginning of something powerful and essential, as can Nick, but he is incapable of following his heart and lets the unwise, ill-conceived opinion of his friend influence him. In the later story, Cross Country Snow, which I will also look at, we will find Nick having learned from his mistakes, now a more mature and more balanced man in that Jungian sense I addressed briefly in my last podcast. A further level of meaning I find particularly compelling in this story is how, while it is a story about the ending of fun and the beginning of love echoed in all those metaphorical endings and beginnings, that first paragraph, that mini-story, serves as more than just a setup for this idea. The history of human exploitation of natural resources of the planet is fundamentally the same story, one of people's inability to work to establish a nurturing and more complex and rewarding relationship with the environment, looking for fun, a desire to seek quick gains without making the long look toward the future, cut down all the forests, forgetting that the use of waterways to transport the logs out into Lake Michigan and beyond will cause erosion that will destroy the fisheries for years to come, pump all the oil out of the ground and burn it, releasing carbon from an ancient epoch into the atmosphere, leading to a potentially unlivable planet. In other words, the story is also about the human incapacity to embrace that which is more nuanced, Things more like the light of the moon, the murky depths, the dense and difficult to move through water itself. And Nick is left, like the empty mill buildings, with everything gone inside him. But this isn't as simple as it sounds either. Out of that emptiness, something lesser men may well not have felt when breaking up with girlfriends at this stage of a relationship, is the potential to become a more complex, more complete, and authentic human being, which we will see occur in stories like Big Two-Hearted River and Cross-Country Snow. Some final points. 
Here again we see a female character who is dynamic, independent, more in touch with her emotions, more capable of expressing what she feels, and willing to tell the male character exactly how she feels, though on her own terms. Here again is a female character who uses a full range of modes of knowledge and is especially adept at using the imagery of the landscape she inhabits to help her understand the dynamics at play. The story of Horton's Bay is the story of Nick and Marjorie, just as Nick and Marjorie are the story of Horton's Bay and of the very landscape they inhabit. And I would go so far as to argue that the opening story is directly from her point of view, that Marjorie initiates this as a metaphor. But I also think Nick is capable of understanding it, which is in part what leaves him in such despair at the story's end. And on into the next story. Just as the schooners took away everything that had made the mill a mill, Marjorie, rowing away at the end of the story, directly mirroring the image of the schooners, could well be her taking away everything that makes Nick, Nick. That without her, without his feminine half, which knows everything, quote-unquote, he is left halved, unbalanced, lost in a Jungian, animus-based version of himself. And we see this self at its ugliest a few stories later in The Battler. And Hemingway regularly used images of men who are completed and made whole by their female counterpart in his work. We see this in A Farewell to Arms, where Frederick and Catherine frequently refer to themselves as, quote, the same person, and in For Whom the Bell Tolls, where Jordan and Maria, quote, become one in his sleeping bag. It is an especially powerful motif in The Battler, where Ads Francis, the boxer, has a wife who looks, quote, enough like him to be his twin. Rather than seeing hills like white elephants as the exception, I will continue to argue that it is the norm, that Hemingway's women regularly outsmart and outclass the male characters and regularly help to complete them in a Jungian sense, that they toy with them, shut them down, dominate them. In a future podcast, I will discuss the role of the inner chapters in In Our Time, those short, italicized, one-half to one-page vignettes that come between every longer story and were the only text of the first iteration of the book. In several inner chapters, we find bullfighting scenes, and if we overlay those on this story, Marjorie becomes more like the matador, moving away, triumphant, and Nick, prostrate, is the defeated bull. This motif is especially clear in the story up in Michigan, but can also be found in The Battler and elsewhere. The end of something remains for me a cautionary tale, quite relevant today, of our desire for easy, instant gratification, or fun, our unwillingness to step deeply enough into our lives to embrace the complexities and nuance of existence as we strive to nurture and live in harmony with each other, with ourselves, and with the world. I hope you're enjoying Hemingway word for word and will consider subscribing or making a small donation to help support the show. Next time, we'll take a look at Indian Camp. Thanks for listening.
If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my Substack, JourneyCasts. There I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com. That's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I at substack.com. I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution. You can go to buymeacoffee.com and find me there and make a one-time contribution. The address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Arnie Sabat 7. Not sure why it's that, but it's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T 7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one-time contribution. Thanks again. Take care.